This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway and the Flourish Bible Study Series by Lydia Brownback. This series equips you to study the overarching storyline of the Bible, book by book. Designed for your own personal study or a group, each beautiful 10-week workbook features a conversational teaching style that aims to make in-depth Bible study accessible to women in all seasons of life, along with practical application questions and additional recommended resources. Current volumes include studies on Judges, Esther, Habakkuk, Luke, Philippians, James, and First and Second Peter. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a message from Ligon Duncan. This message was originally delivered at TGC's 2021 Women's Conference. Good afternoon, sisters. Are you filled? You've you've heard a lot. You've received a lot. And I want to offer encouragement to you from an area that is perhaps unexpected. Our three messages in this post-conference focus on the finished work of Christ the ongoing and continual work of the Holy Spirit and the unchanging character of God. And we find rest in this restless world from all three of those glorious biblical realities. Now, generally, when people come to appreciate the doctrines of grace taught in the scriptures, They are encouraged by the truth of their justification, but are sometimes discouraged by the state of their sanctification. In other words, when you learn that you are counted righteous in Christ, that you are accepted, forgiven, and pardoned, not for anything in you, or anything that you have done, but only on the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which you have received by faith alone, 
So when you learn the glorious doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that is a very encouraging truth for the Christian life. But sometimes the state of our sanctification is a discouragement to us. We wish that we were more mature. We wish that we had grown more in grace. We wish that we were more godly. We're disappointed that we're struggling with certain besetting sins and that we've been praying against and working against and seeking to mortify those sins for days or months or years and we find ourselves still battling with them. Struggling to trust God. Struggling to be content. Struggling to love unloving and unlovable people in our lives. Struggling to yield our wills to God's will when God's will places a demand on our life. And, and we're frustrated by our lack of progress in that godliness. But I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit's work in your life to conform you to the image of God is good news. That is, justification and sanctification are good news. And they are huge motivations, both of them, for the living of the Christian life. Now, Romans 6 to 8 is speaking to the larger theme of how grace reigns in righteousness in the Christian life. You've already heard that word in the talk that you just heard from Kathleen. Grace reigns in righteousness is a very, very important Pauline theme. And Romans 6 to 8 basically expounds that theme. And Romans 8 especially discusses the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And let me just ask you to open to Romans 8. I want to walk you through it in outline, and then we're going to read all the way down to chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 29, because the Word of God is more important than anything that I will say today. And everything that I say today, I will attempt to very clearly show you how it comes from the Word of God. But if I could outline the passage, it would be something like this. Paul is teaching you in Romans 8 about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And he means that to be an encouragement to you. He's not trying to beat you up. He's trying to encourage you in the Christian life. And by the way, in this, in this chapter, especially, he is trying to encourage you as you face various kinds of suffering, weakness, and trial. So he is your ally in the fight that you live in the Christian life in this fallen world where you face suffering and weakness and trial. And he's bringing to bear the doctrine of the Holy Spirit at work in your life in order to encourage you. And here's, here's sort of the, the steps of the argument, the flow of the chapter as he addresses that theme for daily Christian living 
in nine parts. So nine points as we work through the, uh, this, this chapter. By the way, the message will not be nine points. So just be, be at ease. It's not a nine point message. I'm just walking you through the chapter before we read it. So you can see the flow of the argument. Okay, first, if you look at verses one to four, Paul is telling you there how it is that we are able to grow in grace despite still having to deal with our own indwelling sin. Remember Romans 7? Romans 7, Paul addresses the indwelling sin in the life of the believer. So he comes right out of the blocks in Romans 8, verses 1 to 4, to tell you how you're able to grow in grace in spite of the reality of indwelling sin. Then second, look at verses 5 to 11. There, he is going to show you the difference between worldliness and godliness. One of the things he's going to say is that the Holy Spirit's going to grow you in godliness. And so he wants you to know how godliness and worldliness look. He wants you to be able to identify those things and see the difference between worldliness and godliness. And he actually has five points to explain worldliness and godliness to you in that section. Then in verses 12 to 17, he talks about how the Holy Spirit shows us that we are sons of God. In verses 18 to 25, fourth, he shows you how the Holy Spirit helps us in our present sufferings as they work for our future glory. So he immediately transitions from talking about us being the sons of God to equipping us for suffering because the sinless son of God suffered and we would assume that those of us who are united to him are going to experience suffering in the Christian life. How are we going to endure that? The apostle Paul explains in that fourth section. Then the fifth section of the chapter, verses 26 and 27, there he explains to you how the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. Then in verses 28 to 30, he explains how we are certain that God's promises will be fulfilled to us. In verses 31 and 32, he explains how much God is for us. In verses 33 and 34, he explains how secure in your justification you are. And this is actually a 10th point rather than the ninth point. So you got an extra bonus point here. How you can be more than conquerors, even if you feel like your sheep being led to the slaughter. That's verses 35 to 39. Now we're going to concentrate on verses 1 to 29. And really, this message is a one-point message, but I'm going to illustrate it in five parts in that section. So we're going to look at Romans 1, uh, 8, verses 1 to 29. Let's pray and ask for God's help and blessing. Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The grass withers, the flowers, they fade and they fall, but your word stands and it stands forever. Sanctify us 
with truth, your word is truth. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man, the woman of God may be equipped for every good work. So speak, Lord, your servants listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word. Hear it in Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That sounds familiar. Kathleen was just talking about something very similar. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. Sisters, the work of the Spirit in you, in the Christian life, is good news. And the Spirit's work in you is not only ongoing, it is relentless. It is continual. The Spirit does not tire, falter, or fail even when we do. The Spirit never gives up. The Spirit is always at work in you. And His work is to bring about the fulfillment of the purposes of God which were set in motion from before the foundation of the world. And so I want you to see five ways that the Spirit's work is characterized in this great passage. The first you'll see in verses 1 to 4. And here's what I want you to learn. Your justification by grace, that's verse 1, your justification by grace and your sanctification by God through the Spirit's work, that's verse 2, Your justification by grace and your sanctification by God through the Spirit's work both ground your sense of freedom in the Christian life. It is the Spirit who enables you to live in such a way as to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Look especially at verse 4. The Spirit's work in you does what? Is in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is very good news. In other words, God is more concerned about your sanctification than you are, and God's Spirit 
is at work in you to accomplish the fulfillment of God's law. By the way, this is very similar, isn't it, to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Would you turn with me there? In Philippians chapter 2, he says this. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the big picture of that little passage is simply this. Your obedience in the Christian life is all due to the work of God in you. And Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, that is especially the work of God's Spirit in you. So the good news of sanctification is God cares about your growth in grace. God cares about your godliness far more than you do. And he doesn't just say to you, okay, you're saved now. Go do it on your own. Go live the Christian life. He is at work in you. And your effort in the Christian life is based on what he is already doing in you. This is why Augustine very famously said, Lord... All the good in me is due to you. The rest is my fault. So every evidence of growth in grace in the Christian life is due to the work of the Holy Spirit in us and in response to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And that's very good news. That's the first thing I want you to see. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Look at verses 1, uh, verses 5 to 11. Believers live according to the Spirit. That is, God's work of saving grace always produces heart changes in believers that are manifest in their lives. And one of the great results of that is that you are now able to revel in the pleasure of God in you. Now just take that in. Believers live according to the Spirit. That is, God's work of saving grace always produces heart changes in believers that are manifest in our lives. And that means that we are able to revel in God's pleasure in you. Now, in this passage, I told you, he contrasts worldliness and godliness. And if you'll look at verses 5 to 8, he tells you what worldliness look like, looks like. Worldliness is that which sets its mind on the things of the flesh. In other words, one's thoughts, interests, desires, and purposes are focused on what you want in this life, not on the will of God. Second, worldliness is hostile to God. That is, it doesn't like God's rule. It doesn't like God's will. It seeks to do what it wants to do, not what God commands in his words. Third, worldliness does not subject itself to the law of God. 
Just like Eve and Adam listened to the voice of the serpent, not the word of God, worldliness listens to the flesh, not the word of God. Fourth, worldliness is not even able to subject itself to the law of God. The the worldliness, even though the worldling thinks, I'm going to do what I want to do. And what is that? That feels what? That feels free. I'm doing what I want to do. You are bound into slavery to the flesh when you're living life that way. When when the principle is, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's the boss of me. God's not the boss of me. I'm going to do what I want to do. Worldliness means that it's morally impossible to subject yourself to the law of God. And finally, the worldling cannot please God, verse 8. That is, it's absolutely impossible to experience the pleasure of God that way. Absolutely impossible. In contrast, believers, we're told, again, go back through 5 through 8, Believers set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That is, your heart, your reason, your desires, your will is controlled by the Spirit. The purposes of your life are spiritual. You are at peace with God because of the justification that we talked about back in verse 1. There's no condemnation. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, you have been justified. There is no condemnation for you. You have peace with God because of what God has done for you in love. Third, you are, the Christian mind is subject to the law of God. That is, you say with the psalmist, how I love your law, Lord. You know that the word of God is not the result of God sitting up in heaven thinking, how can I ruin their lives? No, the word of God is meant to bless you. It is a conspiracy to bless you. God never commands anything that's not for your good. And therefore, you know how I love your law, Lord. It it doesn't condemn me. It's, It's a rule for life that's meant for my blessing. Furthermore, you are able to subject yourself to the law of God. Why? Because the Spirit has changed your heart. You're no longer in rebellion against God's Word. You love His law. And as a result, you can please God. Now, let me just pause and say, the Christian's ability to revel in the pleasure of God is very different from trying to please a person who is unpleasable. To do the latter will just about kill you in life. To do the former is a joy. Let me explain. Um, One of the godliest women that I've ever known um, was the daughter of a single mother who was an unbeliever. And her father left the family when she was a teenager and she really, she was converted as a teenager and really tried to dutifully serve her mom. But her mom was a very bitter person, very, very bitter bitter about life. And consequently was always stuck in ingratitude. 
And I remember one day approaching her after church on a Sunday morning and she was in tears. She had been caring for her mother whose health was deteriorating. And she said to me, Ligon, my mother said something to me today that she has never said in her entire life. She said, thank you. And then she dissolved into tears. Now, if <laughs> this, this woman is uber competent. All, uh, if, if you came to my community, people would know her. She's on boards. She chairs this and that. She's got a wonderful family. People would look at her and say, I wish I had her life. And here she is broken down in tears in front of me because her mother said thank you. And she had never heard her mother say thank you before. In other words, serving a bitter, ungrateful person just about killed her. That is not what it is like to serve God. If you have children, have you ever had a little one come into the kitchen with a crayon drawing? Mommy, I drew a picture of you. And you look at it and it kind of looks like Sasquatch. And... And what do you say? That's a terrible drawing. Go back and try again. No, you don't do that. What do you do? Oh, honey, that's so wonderful. We're going to put it right up on the refrigerator. Now notice that that child already knows that you take pleasure in him or her. And you do. And it is not the quality of the artistic craftsmanship that leads you to well up in love for that little one who's brought you the picture of Sasquatch that he thinks somehow looks like you. It's the, that he, she is your own. That child belongs to you. You brought that child into the world. And you love that child. That's what it's like pleasing the Heavenly Father. There's a, there's a scene in Chariots of Fire, which most of you are too young to have ever seen. Um, Chariots of Fire is a movie about two British runners. One is an unbeliever. One is a believer. One is a, a Jewish man named Harold Abram who ran for England. One is a Scottish man named Eric Little who ran for Scotland and uh, who became a very famous missionary and died in a Japanese prison camp in China in the Second World War. And in that movie, there is actually a fictitious scene. Eric Little's sister was still alive when the movie was made and she was really hurt about the scene because it never happened. It made it look like she was not supportive of Eric's running uh, in the races. And, and they're having this discussion on Arthur's seat, this beautiful scene in Edinburgh. And uh, she's objecting to, to Eric spending so much time with his athletic pursuits when he could be doing mission work. And he says to her, Jenny, Jenny, don't fret yourself, Jenny. God made me fast. And when I run... I feel his pleasure. Now, what was Eric Little saying in that statement? Um, he was saying he knew that God is the one who gave him his athletic ability. God was the one who gave him the ability to run really fast. And when he was doing what he was created to do, he knew that his heavenly father was pleased because that's what God made him to do. Have, 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 you ever, have you ever seen a dog running free in a field? Just doing the things that dogs were created to do? It's almost idyllic. It's restorative. Watching a dog do what it's supposed to do. 
When we are what God made us to be and do what God made us to do, it is not bondage, it is freedom, and he takes pleasure in that. And all the imperfections don't take away from that glorious reality. Yes, just like the little child, everything we do have, has imperfection in it, but he takes pleasure in it because it is what he created us to be. We're doing what he created us to do. That's not bondage, it's freedom. And so, yes, we don't want to think that we're performing to try to get God to love us. But we do want to understand that because God's love is upon us and because God's love for us was prior to our love for him, he takes pleasure in our obedience. He takes pleasure in it. That's good news, sisters. Good, good news. Here's a third thing that I want you to see in this passage. Look at verses 12 to 17. The Spirit's goal is that we will truly know that we are sons of God. And let me just pause and say, all of you sisters in Christ are sons of God. And what that means, especially for Paul, is you are co-inheritors with Christ. Daughters were not inheritors in those days. Sons were, and you are co-inheritors, sisters in Christ. That's why you're included in all the brethren uh, addresses in the New Testament. You are sons of God. And the Spirit's goal is that you would not only know that you are sons, but that you would actually live life as God's son, both in freedom and obedience. In other words, sonship is not only a status that gives us great security and comfort, though it does. To know that we have been called the children of God, to know that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, to know that we are sons of God, to know that Christ by his spirit has accomplished in us what Adam ruined in the garden. That All of that is glorious and wonderful and true and important, but it is also, sonship is also a motivation to godliness. When we realize we are God's son, we want to live like that. We want to look like our heavenly father. And even if you've had an earthly father that has not accurately imaged what the heavenly father is like, you can long to be like your heavenly father who has never failed you and who has always loved you and has always cared for you. To be like him. Sonship is not only a status for comfort, it's a motivation to godliness. Fourth, look at verses 26 and 27. I want you to see that the spirit helps you to pray in the Christian life. The Spirit helps you to pray in the Christian life. The children of God have two intercessors. 
You have Christ in glory ever living to intercede for you, and you have the Holy Spirit with you in this earthly tabernacle. You've got two intercessors interceding for you, and when you don't know what to pray or how to pray for it, the Spirit helps you. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And that is so important in the Christian life. Listen to these beautiful words from James Philip. Even when through the pressures of life and the accompanying spiritual darkness, we grope helplessly and inarticulately in prayer, God still hears. For confused and even mistaken as we may be, he discerns the voice of the Spirit in our prayers, and he is not confused, but is interceding for the saints according to the will of God. This is an important and illuminating thought for spiritual life. In the fight of faith, there are times when pressures are such that bewilderment and even darkness assail the soul. And it is almost impossible to remain clear-eyed. Often a horror of real darkness comes down upon our spirit and words fail for prayer and even thoughts until a hard, unyielding torpor comes upon our spirits. It is then when we can do no more than groan inarticulately that he groans in our groans with unutterable intensity and the nameless, wordless agony of spirit that we sometimes endure but cannot understand, God understands. The spirit does that for you. You've got no words to lift up to God. He does. And he knows just the words to lift up to God. And he will hear your prayers and he will reply to your prayers. You know, it, it strikes me, if I'm reading Romans, uh, if I'm reading Daniel 9 right, Gabriel tells Daniel that that prayer, which was a prayer for the children of Israel to be restored from captivity back to the land of Israel, that that prayer was part of God's instrumental purposes in bringing about the coming of the Messiah into the world. And it is not lost on me that Luke tells me that it's Gabriel that goes to Mary to tell her that she is going to bear the son that God is sending into the world. Daniel, I think, was groaning with groans too deep for words, and the Spirit took that prayer, and he used it as an instrument for bringing the Savior into this world. The Spirit helps us to pray when we don't know what to pray. Thank God for that continual ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in life. That is not bad news. That is really good news. One last thing. Look at verses 28 and 29. This very fair, famous work, God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But notice, notice what the purpose is. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen to it again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image 
of his son. In other words, it has been God's purpose from the foundation of the world to conform you to the image of his son and that the spirit is doing here and now continually in your sanctification and it will be completed fully then in glorification. God's purpose from before the foundation of the world is that you would be like his son. You you remember the passage where C.S. Lewis says, if you could see a glorified Christian in heaven, you would be tempted to fall down and worship him. It is the spirit that is conforming you to the image of the son. Sometimes it feels like he's killing you when he's doing it. Because he's killing sin, and sometimes he's killing sin that is very dear to us. You know, have have you ever ministered to somebody under the powerful control of an addiction? And one part of them knows that if I don't give up this particular addiction, I'm going to lose everything. But there's another part that says, I've got to have it. And when the spirit kills something like that, controlling our lives, what does it feel like? It feels like we're dying. But that's his ultimate purpose is not to make us feel like we're dying. His ultimate purpose is to conform us to the image of the Son so that we look like Jesus. We believe like Jesus believes. We think what Jesus thinks. We want what Jesus wants. We desire what Jesus desires. We long for what Jesus longs for. We love people like Jesus loves. The Spirit's doing that. And that was the purpose of God from before the foundation of the world. The Spirit's ongoing work, the Spirit's continual work in the Christian life is not bad news. It is very, very good news. Be encouraged, sisters. The Spirit is at work in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, make us like Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.